Good evening. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Matthew's Gospel. We're going to be studying the Beatitudes in just a moment. I appreciate the presence of everyone here. I see several in the audience that are visiting tonight. And on behalf of the congregation here in Franklin, uh, I'll just say that we appreciate your presence and hope that you can come back and, and be with us once again. You know, I think one of the second hardest things about preaching is getting the microphone on the bell. <laughs> you just have to do it to know what that's like. And every mic, every, uh, everyone's different. One problem this morning. I must ate too much today. Oh, and by the way, I appreciate the, uh, the Garrett for uh, keeping us this afternoon and keeping my son entertained. Micah had a great time. Here. Okay, let's just put it in the pocket. Uh, Micah had a great time, and um, I did too. I, I've known Steve for uh, several years. Um, he's one of those I used to do his tax return for him and knew him through preaching, and I uh, think a lot of him and his wife. I enjoyed them. She's kind of entertainment in and of herself, so uh, had a had a great meal. But um, I appreciate my son. He um, he asked me a question just before I came up here that just uh, really impressed me with my parenting and the contribution that I've made to his spiritual development. He said, son, he said, dad, what is a beatitude? I thought, you know, I, I, that's a good question. That's, that's a question that needs to be asked. Shows a lot of, a lot of spiritual insight and desire and, and, and a yearning for knowledge. Of course, he also asked me right after, he said, Dad, where are we going to eat tonight? <laughs> so, uh, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Not where we're going to eat tonight, but, but, but what is a beatitude? You know, we, we throw that word around quite frequently. We talk about the beatitudes. Well, what is a beatitude? Whatever it is, and if that's what this section of Jesus' sermon should be titled, it's important. And I say that because this is where the sermon that Jesus preached here begins. Jesus was at the beginning of his ministry, and he was preaching of the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. Where would you have begun that sermon? If you were given the responsibility to put together a lesson, and you knew that the multitudes were going to be gathered, and that you were going to have to say something that would help them understand what, what was important in terms of this kingdom, what would you have said? I wonder if we took 50 of our best preachers, and we don't know who those are, but if we could if we could define who the best preachers are and, and ask them to put together the first sermon to be preached by the Lord without having ever seen perhaps or knowing what that sermon would be, what would they have put together? What is a beatitude? I think that the word almost by definition sheds tremendous light on what Jesus saw as being important for us. And that is our attitude. I don't mean to make the lesson trite. 
But what Jesus wanted his disciples to understand was that if you are going to be a member of my kingdom, then your heart is going to have to be at a certain place. You're going to have to have a proper mindset. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to think a certain way. And that way is going to be very different from the way that you have always thought before. And it's going to have to be very different from the way the world would lead you to think. Attitude is critical to success in any endeavor in life. What makes greatness is attitude. What, what enables us to overcome obstacles is, is attitude. What helps us so often to have a good marriage? It's attitude. Attitude is everything. And I believe it was for that reason that Jesus began with the mind. He wanted to cultivate the minds of his disciples so as to be able to understand that, that his kingdom was not of this world. It would be a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom that, that the prophets foretold would not be like the kingdoms of this world. And if you are going to be successful, and we define success in the eyes of God, it's finding out what God's will is and doing it. If you're going to be successful in this kingdom, it's going to begin with the mind. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let me ask you this question tonight. As I read those words of the Lord, did they in any way describe you? Do you find yourself living a life that is a demonstration of these so-called Beatitudes? The word blessed in and of itself is interesting. It does carry with it the idea of being happy or of being in a happy state. But it in and of itself is a mental condition. It is a recognition that life is good, not because of what you have, but because of who you are. Do you have that? Do you consider yourself to be a, a blessed person? When others look at you, it's the first thing that goes to their mind that, that there goes a blessed man, there goes a, a blessed woman. By virtue of the person they are, the attitude they have, the way they live, their communication, their speech, their priorities in life, he is blessed. Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. I wouldn't begin any success presentation by using the word poor. 
And yet Jesus did. And He didn't say, blessed are the poor in money. Blessed are those who are physically impoverished. He said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Now, that's not a reference to somebody who's depressed. That is a reference to one who recognizes their poverty of spirit. It is the mind that comes before God and says, I am in need of salvation. It is the spirit of the publican about which we read in the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, Jesus also told the parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. Well, that sounds like so many religious people today, doesn't it? Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and he was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now here's the poor in spirit. But the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was, he was beating his breast and he was saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's almost as if he's saying, look at this other man and look at me. I'm the sinner. Are you the type that can't even look up to heaven when you pray? Are you the type that recognizes your sin to such an extent that you can't even look God in the face because you are ashamed of who you are? You should be. Because it's only when you reach that point in life that you're going to find yourself blessed. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. I took a confession a couple of weeks ago from a young girl. She was pregnant and unmarried, and she came to confess her sin. I don't know about the rest of you, but... It's refreshing for me when I see someone who is truly broken in spirit. Tears flowing, uncontrollable sobbing, complete recognition of total dependence upon God. It's refreshing because it's rare. And so many of us have drifted so far away from that disposition. We can't, even, we can't even see our own sin anymore. We've accepted it. We've rationalized it. We've embraced it. And yet, this is where king, kingdom living begins. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus in verse 4 said, Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn for what? Mourn about what? Mourn for what reason? They mourn for the reason that they are sinners. In his great treatise on salvation, the Apostle Paul wrote in the third chapter of the book of Romans in regards to the spiritual condition of man. And in seeking to impress upon the Jewish mind that all were in need of salvation because of their spiritual condition, he wrote as follows in Romans 3, beginning in verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. This is how God looks at us. This is what God sees when he looks at mankind. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of ash is under their lips whose mouth is, is full of cursing and bitterness. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's for this reason that the Apostle Paul wrote in this same chapter, in Romans the third chapter, in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we all are. We fall short of God's glory. Look at your life. Is there anybody here who can honestly say anything about themselves in terms of their relationship with God other than, I fall short? I keep thinking that at some point in my life I'll be able to say something other than that. But I can't. In the book of James... He said it best in chapter 4, in the latter part of verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Again, when's the last time you did that? When is the last time you, you brought your sin before God and you expressed remorse because of that sin? You mourned because of that sin. You lamented your sinful condition. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. It will cleanse your soul to do so. It is the only way we can truly confess our sins is to mourn about them. Jesus said, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And again, as you move through these Beatitudes, you can't help but see how that so many of us go in so many different directions to find what we all want. And that's, that's that blessed state. You'll go to work tomorrow. And you'll labor hard. 
think that in some way the work that you do is going to bring this, this mental disposition into your life. And it will not. This has nothing to do with worldly matters. This has to do with a matter of the heart. Jesus said in verse 5, Blessed are the gentle, or humble, for they shall inherit the earth. And verse 5 and verse 3, I suppose, are somewhat closely related. What is humility? What is, what is meekness? It's not weakness, as we often say, and I think that's correct. I think Jesus was meek. I think Jesus was humble. If there's, if there's an example of anyone to whom we can go to define the term humility, it would be Christ. He exemplified humility. He wasn't weak. He didn't mince words when he had to say what needed to be said in order to produce change in the life of one to whom he was speaking. I don't think he was physically weak. But what I see about Jesus is controlled strength. And I believe that's humility. It's, it's, it's knowing that you have an ability, but at the same time giving recognition to the source of that ability. It's, it's knowing that you have certain capabilities to do things, but at the same time, exercising those only within the context of a desire to bring glory to God. I think of the fruit of the Spirit when I think of humility, because in the fruit of the Spirit, I do see, I do see controlled strength. Paul wrote about these attributes or this fruit in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 when he said that the fruit of the Spirit is, is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And again, I think if I could put all of that into a pot and stir it up, what would fall, fall out of that is, is humility. Meekness, controlled strength, the possession of attributes that, that one can use to bring glory to God with the simultaneous recognition, again, that you exercise those attributes only so as to bring glory to Him. And, and all that, again, points back to Jesus. Jesus was one who experienced before the foundation of the world and before He came here and lived here on this earth, Glory with the Father. And yet he was willing to give up what was his for the betterment of mankind, to bring about the salvation of man's souls. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. That's a powerful statement to me. What that tells me is that if I can learn to practice humility, I can do almost anything. I can almost 
literally inherit the earth. The earth can be mine. The world can be mine. Not in a worldly sense, but, but in the sense of being able to, to move forward in life and to accomplish things for God and, and to be able to deal with the trials and the problems and the vicissitudes of life. If I can just learn to be humble, because humility takes your mind off yourself. And so many of us find ourselves depressed and discouraged and distraught because we are absorbed with our personal situation. We love to talk about our problems. We love to think about our problems. We love to mull over our problems. We love to seek solutions to our problems. What are we doing? We're thinking only about ourselves. And yet humility takes my mind off of me and it moves me in the direction of other people. And when I learn to have that controlled strength, in whatever situation I might find myself thinking of others, then I can accomplish great things for God. Jesus went on in verse 6 to say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what do you hunger and thirst? You know, that's about passion, isn't it? It's about feeling a pull in life. It's about looking deep with inside yourself and asking yourself, what am I all about? What is my life really all about? Who am I? What fills the void of my soul? What do I want more than anything else in life? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That state or condition that is acceptable to God. The desire to do what is right. To be right with God. To be right with others. Just to be right. Do you hunger and thirst for that? I could ask that question a hundred times. And I'm not sure if I would ever really get at the crux of the matter. Because hunger and thirst are alien concepts to us. We, we have ready access to that which satisfies our hunger and our thirst. And yet again, look at, look at your life. Are you really happy? Does having such ready access bring you peace? Does it bring you happiness? Do you consider yourself blessed because of that? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. I want to show you passion. Look, look at Philippians chapter 3. You should have listened to the words of a man who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3 and verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever was of importance in his life that he gave up in becoming a child of God, he says, now they're just dung. They're rubbish. Verse 8, 
more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know what I see here is a man who, 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 who lost sleep at night because he was hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I tell you, my wife beats me up with my sermons. I preach this stuff, and then she'll see me tumbling in bed at night, restless, unable to sleep, worried about a meeting, a business business meeting that I'm soon to be a part of, or having to make a difficult business decision. I preach to people all the time, that's not the sort of thing that ought to keep you awake at night. You ought to be, you ought to be losing sleep because you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know, her question the next morning, were you hungering and thirsting for righteousness last night? I hate it when she does that. Verse 9, and, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What a difference that attitude would make in your day. What a difference that attitude would make in your life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 8 of Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the merciful. What is mercy? Well, it's a game you play when you're a kid. You get, you get them down on the ground, you bend their arm behind your ba- their back, and you don't let them up until they say mercy. Or they say mercy. Well, that's probably not a bad illustration of mercy. Why beg for mercy? Because you need it. You're, you're in a position where there is no escape. And you need help. You need relief. You need an escape. That's, that's mercy. Mercy is identifying a need and then meeting that need. Think about this. When was the last time you extended mercy to somebody? That's a hard question, isn't it? I don't even know of a time in my life when it was obvious that I was extending mercy to somebody. I consider myself a merciful person. But where is the evidence for it? James wrote about this in James, the second chapter. 
And he said something that's very frightening. In verse 12 of James chapter 2, James chapter 2 and verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. At the judgment, will merciless will mercy will judgment be merciless to me because I have shown no mercy? Is there anyone in my life of whom it can be said I looked and I identified the need? Of, of their existence, and I extended mercy so as to bring them out of that condition? It's only the merciful who are going to receive mercy. You see, if I make that a, a part of who I am, if I make that a part of my, my routine in life to be merciful toward others, that I'm going to be happy because I know that what goes around comes around. And someday God will be merciful to me. Two more and then the lesson is yours. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I believe the pure in heart are those who are morally pure, but I believe it goes beyond that. I believe the pure in heart about what Jesus was speaking here are those whose loyalty is not divided, who are not trying to serve God and mammon, but those who are trying to serve God, period. And again, what's a brotherhood issue? Is it not divided loyalty? Why, why do we find our churches not growing? Is it not because of the divided loyalty that exists among so many of us? Not truly committed? Not pure and sincere of heart in our devotion to God? In Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus was addressing the scribes and Pharisees, he pronounced upon them in verse 25 a woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Trouble. Hypocrites. For you, you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but, but inside they are full of of robbery and self-indulgence. That word characterizes our society. It describes the world of which we are a part. Does it describe you? You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. What's he saying here? Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and, and, and all uncleanliness. Even so, 
you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What does God see when he looks at us? Does he see purity of heart? Jesus said, for they shall see God. You see, God only wants in his fellowship those who are totally devoted to him. James said that God jealously desires the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He, he, he desires us. He jealously desires us. He is jealous for our affection. He is jealous for our attention. He is jealous for our devotion. Do we give him all of that? What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord thy God with all the heart, the soul, and the mind. That's the greatest commandment. And it is only when God sees that in us that we'll see God. And then finally, verse 9. And we covered verse 10 this morning, verses 10 through 12. But verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. I want to be a peacemaker. Why do I want to be a peacemaker? Because I don't like conflict. It wears me out. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Let me give you some inspiration for the week. If you want to have a good week, you just practice what we're about to read. Romans 12 and verse 17 Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. How many people have done evil to you? Paul says, don't pay it back. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they've done to you. I don't care how much they may deserve evil. Don't pay it back. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You work on those things that are within your sphere of influence. You control you. You can't control other people. You can't control how they're going to react in any given situation, but you can control you. So far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, verse 19, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our challenge is to do that very thing, almost on a daily basis. There is evil everywhere you look. Almost every relationship, there's evil. Overcome it with good. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. It is one who seeks reconciliation among men. It is one who is always seeking to make relationships better. The older I get, 
the more important relationships are to me. At the end of my life, success will be measured, in my estimation, by the quality of the relationships that I have developed during the time that I have here upon this earth. And that, that consideration is a function of the extent to which I am a peacemaker. Always looking, and you'll always have a project, always looking to bring about reconciliation. Jesus said, for they shall be called sons of God. Why? Because in acting in that fashion, we're following in the footsteps of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Jesus died to bring about peace between God and man. He died to bring about peace between man and man. The gospel is a gospel. It is a message of reconciliation. And when I make that my mission in life, then I will be truly a son of God, a child of God. It's all about attitudes. It's hard preaching. It's hard for me, and I know it's hard for you. But we need to challenge ourselves, brethren, and we need to raise the bar in our lives. For, for too long, too many of us have accepted spiritual mediocrity. And we've got to get past that. If we are going to be the salt of the earth, if we are going to preserve that which is good, if we are going to be lights in a world of darkness and glorify God through our good works, then we're going to have to change the way we think. And we're going to have to start seeing, seeing our lives through the eyes of God's Word and stop seeing our lives as the world sees life. Where are you at in this? I pray that God will strengthen you to become what He created you to be.